When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. So many anniversaries over the last couple of days that I'd like to spend time on, but don't have that time. It was on this day that the Winter Palace was stormed, triggering the Bolshevik Revolution, which led to the establishment of the USSR, the Soviet Union, now 30 years dead, but lamented by 75% of the Russian people. It's official in the latest Western poll on the matter. Uh, it was the day, the very day, that the late and great Leonard Cohen passed from this earth, a man of great beauty, lyrical beauty, and a beauty of character not often seen in the music business. ABBA outsold him, no doubt, but we'll be talking about them later in the show. It's the anniversary, or the 5th of November was, when Captain Bob, 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 Robert Maxwell, MC, uh, the erstwhile publisher of a whole slew of British newspapers. If he'd been alive today, he'd have had a television station or two also. Went into the drink in the Mediterranean and inadvertently made me very, very rich. I had uh, accused him under privilege in the House of Commons of a whole series of very serious matters. He immediately assailed me on the front page of every one of his newspapers, all of them singing from the same hymn sheet. I issued proceedings. He was ready to defend those proceedings. But when he fell, or was he pushed off the back of his luxury yacht, the hopes of his newspapers of defending my libel action slipped under the waves with him. I'm still driving the luxury car that those libel damages afforded me. And for a time I lived in a house, a whole wing of which had been bought for me by Captain Robert Maxwell's newspapers. And I mentioned earlier about social media. It's a thing. It's an important thing. We'll be talking uh, to the founder of Getter, a man who used to be a senior advisor to Donald Trump about the nexus of social media and politics. Earlier this week, uh, the uh, more inquiring amongst you on Twitter already know, I and my children were threatened with death, a bloody and heinous death, by a Twitter account apparently opened for the purpose of delivering that threat. I'm on the trail of the person, so are the police, so are others who will have to remain uh, unnamed for the moment. 
we intend to track down this man. A rather out-of-the-ordinary threat, threatening not just me but my children, even dropping an emoji of a teddy bear at the end of his threat against them. It turns out that the man had opened two Twitter accounts in October, uh, following only one account, mine. But he opened a third in November, which only ever issued one tweet, which was a threat to kill me, but with special algorithm evading techniques built into the tweet. After a day, Twitter took it down. I'm suing Twitter in Dublin, where they are headquartered, amongst other things, demanding the immediate handing over of the internet address, the IP address of that account, so that at least I know whether the person involved is my neighbor or someone more far flung. I mention neighbor because the name of the threatening account was Aidan Foster, spelled A-I-D-E-N. When I googled the unusual spelling of that name, I discovered that the only person that comes up is the star of the Australian soap opera series, Neighbours. Was that supposed to make me think uh, that the man that's threatening to kill me lives nearby? Or was it a reference to Russia's neighbours? Who knows? But we intend to find out. It's been a week. We still have not heard from Twitter. We've only now heard from the police in Scotland, where I live, who are doing a very good job. But the Metropolitan Police took several days, days, not hours, to pass them the necessary paperwork to task them to carry out the investigation. So much for lessons must be learned from the stabbing to death by a blade wielded allegedly by an Islamist fanatic which murdered my erstwhile parliamentary colleague David Amos a couple of weeks ago. Social media is not living up to the expectations of the public or of the lawmakers. The lawmakers have different axes to grind than someone like me. The lawmakers want to close down social media because that's the only part of the media that holds politicians to account, holds governments to account. I want lawbreakers, people threatening others with death, to be promptly handed over to the police. I'm not against anonymous Twitter accounts, but their actual identity must be verifiably known to the social media platform, which is allowing them to write whatever they like on their platform, so that if what it is that they like constitutes a crime, then that criminal's details can be handed promptly to the victim and to the authorities. I'll be discussing these matters with the former uh, advisor to Donald Trump, the man behind Getter, 
a social media account that might have some chance of escaping the shackles that the liberal owners of Twitter and of Facebook, of YouTube and uh, Instagram, by the way, Instagram's back online, welcome uh, to you, uh, of the liberal shackles that put Donald Trump, then the president of the United States of America, off their platforms into social media oblivion. Is Trump going to use social media to make his comeback? He'd win, according to the latest poll, a presidential race which is coming up in 2024 by a massive eight percentage points. As predicted last week here by Garland Nixon, the Democrats lost catastrophically the governorship of Virginia in what might be a harbinger of midterm election defeats yet to come for the Democrats. Joe Biden is at record low levels of popularity and Kamala Harris is even less popular than him. So in the unfortunate event of Joe Biden's bath chair running over a cliff whilst being pushed for a perambulation by Kamala Harris, the Democrats would be even worse off than they are under the leadership of Joe Biden. These are important issues. The question of the media is also thrown into very sharp relief. Tonight I can tell you uh, that my next film, my next documentary film, working title 00, How the British Stole an American Presidency, is now underway. I'm writing it, I'll be producing it, I won't be presenting it, and I won't be directing it, but I will be crowdfunding for it on January the 1st of next year. It'll be a bigger budget than normal because filming will have to be done in Britain, in the United States, and in Russia. It refers, of course, to the theft of Donald Trump's first, maybe only, but certainly first presidency by the Russia Gate hoax, which tonight lies in absolute tatters. All those flunkies in the FBI, in the British security services, just next door to me, whose factotum, steal, put together a dossier of dross, even worse dross than Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair's dross dossier, put together by some of the same people, was used to effectively hijack the entire presidency of the United States of America. Not since Britain burned down the White House have the British interfered in American politics like they did with the Russiagate hoax. The key witness who told Steele what Steele, paid by Hillary Clinton, told the American public and political class has now announced that he was lying, that he had no Russian sources. 
that the things he said were in a videotape, supposedly in the hands of the Russians, where Donald Trump was in a hotel room and a gaggle of leggy Russian blondes got so excited to be in his company that they wet themselves. It was all a lie. P-gate was a lie. Russian collusion in the election of Trump was a lie. No one can now dispute it. In fact, the flunkies and the factotums ought to be the least embarrassed parties to this picture because the real villains of the Russiagate hoax picture are the liberal media that swallowed it hook, line and sinker. It's a truism in my life, I've discovered it, that if something is, sounds too good to be true, that's probably because it isn't true. The story about Trump being an agent of Russia who would end up behind bars, some even predicted in front of a firing squad for treason, was all a lie. The story that Trump was in the pay of the Russians turned out to be a lie. And we now know from the testimony of the chief source of the Steele dossier that it was a lie gobbled up with great gusto, adopted with relish by the likes of MSNBC and Rachel Maddow in particular, but by CNN, by the Washington Post, by the New York Times, by the entire plethora of liberal media outlets in the United States, which ended up effectively rendering the first term of Donald Trump's presidency null and void. Now I say to you what I said on the day that Trump was elected. I'm not happy that Donald Trump is the president of the United States of America, but I'm very happy that Hillary Clinton isn't. And that remains my view. It will remain my view come the next presidential election. But what I will not remain silent about is a policy, a hoax, which led to the pushing of Trump down every avenue that he should not have gone down just to prove that he was not an agent of the Russians, that Putin didn't own him. Maddow said on television, that Trump would remove American forces from Russia's borders. So he should, but he didn't. In fact, he redoubled them. Maddow and the others said that Trump would pull back from the foreign wars as he had promised to do in the presidential election, but he didn't. He redoubled. America's involvement in the war on Yemen, in the war on Syria, in the war on Libya. He redoubled 
every compounded, every blunder made by the Obama presidency, not the least of which was almost taking us into a war with Iran and taking actions like the assassination of General Soleimani that plunged the world deeper into the crisis that exists between the West and the Muslim world. I blame the media for that. I expect Hillary Clinton, a rotten, twisting crook, a key member of the Clinton crime family, I expect them to behave like the political mafia that they are. I believe and expect that someone like Steele, a superannuated spook from next door, or maybe across the river right in front of me, will behave as he did behave. Scorpions sting, after all, because they are scorpions. But if their effluent had not been adopted with relish by the American liberal media, echoed, of course, by their a chorus line in London, in The Guardian, in the BBC, then the Trump presidency would have been different. And lastly, although my name is George, I don't believe that Britain has any business in the government of the United States of America. And the fact that Britain, not Russia, but Britain, was the foreign power interfering in the American presidential election. It's going to make a cracking film, I think. That's why I'm calling it 00, because there was nothing to it in the end. Uh, Stephen Williams is unimpressed by the poll, uh, which I'll tell you the results of so far in a minute. Stephen Williams says, it's a stupid poll. What kind of childish options are these? Is a child making these up? Is this the best the media studies intern can come up with? Actually, Stephen, it was drawn up by me. David Jin says, what's the carbon footprint of COP26? Pretty big, a behemoth footprint. Pat Brannigan says, just had to pick the ticket to Timbuktu, but really wish Elon Musk would take them all to Mars and get stuck there. And Donna Dunn said, paid actors, paid activists. Uh, Anthony Ahu says, good evening from Ghana, one of my favorite countries, sir. And Horatio Gonzalez says, greetings from Mexico, Mr. Galloway. P.S. Love your accent. Thank you very much, Horatio. And uh, Paul Everett says, good day, folks. Nicaragua is on and it's presidential election day here at 1.20 p.m. and we are under U.S. media attack. Hunter says, I'm more convinced than ever that Biden is a fake president. And evolutionary reject says, my only wish is that the Democrats fix the climate as well as they fix the southern border and Afghanistan. And Gerard White says, Captain Bob's last flotation was in the Atlantic not the Mediterranean. My uh, sincere apologies. You're right, Gerard. It was uh, off the coast of the Canary Isles. 
And Aussie Weinert says you're speaking the truth to the masses and exposing powerful criminals, George. So stay safe. Thank you. And Celtic Man says those that threaten children are amongst the lowest forms of life. You're right, even the mafia didn't threaten to kill people's children. And Pat Brannigan says Twitter was probably too busy taking down citizens of Nicaragua for supporting the Sandinistas. Good stuff. Keep them uh, coming in. Now, another of our guests that I let down last week, although it turns out she was poorly anyway and might not have been able to join us, was our good friend Lisa Francesca Nand, who's a travel journalist and host of the Big Travel podcast. To call her a travel journalist is like saying that Cristiano Ronaldo is a footballer. He's the greatest footballer, and Lisa is the greatest travel journalist. She joins us now. Uh, Lisa, thank you, and my apologies uh, for last week. Wonderful to see you again, looking in, uh, in the pink. Uh, tell us, first of all, how the travel business is recovering from the damned awful 18 months we've had. Oh, it's been awful, hasn't it? You know, I've spent the last 18 months talking to people within the travel industry and travel agents that have just spent 18 months booking, cancelling, booking, cancelling and not even getting paid for it in some instances and actually slipping through the government support neck as well. So it, it's been really difficult for people. There is a recovery. It's a, it's a slow recovery. It's a shame that the restrictions weren't lifted in time for the summer, really. Uh, they were in the rest of Europe and in a lot of the, the rest of the world. And it's a shame we haven't kept up with that. All we can hope for now is that most of the restrictions have been listed, lifted, at least for the double vaccinated. So we can hope that there will be an upward trajectory. Um, but I do think it's a slow trajectory because, of course, the peak period is over. So I'm sure that we're hoping for some, some winter sun, some ski trip holidays being booked, people going to visit friends and family, of course, but also a, a, a proper recovery come the, the peak period next summer. How many casualties have there been in the business? Uh, I was it's expecting airlines to go to the wall, travel agents, uh, holiday companies to go to the wall. But if they have been, I've missed it. Yeah, and I think that's been really good. I mean, I was kind of expecting it too. You know, even before the pandemic, we had Brexit that caused a lot of problems. Even before Brexit, we had big companies like Thomas Cook. Remember, they went out of uh, uh, out of business and then came back in another form. BMI, uh, at Monarch, you know, all these big stalwarts of our industry actually went, and this is before Brexit in many ways and before the pandemic. Uh, I think the ones that we're not hearing about are going to be the difficult ones. The people who are running travel agents, often independent, sitting at their kitchen tables. It's those that I speak to who have really been struggling. So jobs will have gone. They absolutely, they will have done. But thankfully, we haven't lost um, any of those big high profile companies. But of, of course, redundancies have been made in the big companies as well. I, I miss Monarch, you know. Uh, it was my favourite uh, airline. I used to fly them a lot. And they, they went out of business uh, at the snap of a, a finger. Uh, anyone else miss them or was it just me? 
I miss them. I do actually miss them. In the days before EasyJet, how long has EasyJet been going now? It's uh, difficult to think of a time before EasyJet. I think it's 25 25 years, but Monarch was a a great stalwart airline, you know, from from Gatwick to all the tourist destinations all over uh, Europe, certainly. And yeah, that was, you know, there are other Fly B, B, uh, BMI, um, you know, other airlines went as well. So, you know, like I said, that was before the pandemic. And something that, that we also don't talk about in terms of of the travel industry. It's not just about us going on holiday. We really need to have people over here. We normally generate billions of pounds of of income with people coming over here, and that has been decimated in the last uh, 18 months as well. I I mean, I haven't uh, flown abroad uh, for for a long time, but uh, I I did take the Eurostar a couple of weeks ago. it was, it was a dream journey, by the way, and the staff were absolutely wonderful. We were traveling with three very young children and bags. It was the first time they were going to see their grandparents and so on. So there was all kinds of built-up presents that had to be taken. It was uh, a potential nightmare, but it turned out to be a bit of a dream uh, uh, journey. But although you say the restrictions have gone, there's still a lot of faffing around, isn't there? There's still a lot of tests having to be taken and paid for. Uh, and then when you come back, you have to take a test and then post it uh, at some expense uh, to a company to look at it and so on. Um, h- how much is that holding the travel business back? The fear that it's going to be more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, I totally get that as well, George. I really do. I mean, I've flown a, a few times now. And even for me, you know, I'm a, a, a native, digital native, as it were. You know, I've been using the, the internet for a long time. I'm also a travel professional. I talk about it all the time. When I went to Spain a few weeks ago and I went to, to Germany just this weekend, it's actually really takes some concentration to work out. You know, I was almost standing there in the queue and I was traveling with my two young children as well, seeing, feeling that guilt. You know that guilt when you go through customs, you suddenly think that, you, you know, you're accidentally smuggling loads of drugs or something. I actually got that. I was thinking, have I got the right forms? Am, am I going to you know, be turned back from the border? Am I going to have to fly? You heard people, uh, rumors of people uh, actually flying all the way to a destination and being turned back. So when you actually think about it, it's not a huge deal if you're fully vaccinated. Uh, you usually have to fill out a passenger locator or health form to go into a country uh, and then also want to come back. And they've also still got these day two desk tests. But I think it has put a lot of people off booking even people that I know that are, anecdotally that are, are very well travelled and always quite gung-ho about jumping on an aeroplane even they've thought oh you know I'm actually not going to bother I have to say like like you did George uh, going going to Paris on a Eurostar which I absolutely love it is worth it and when you talk about meeting grandparents that is the real human cost of the closed borders is that people have missed friends and family it's not just about holidays as much as I think holidays are, are very important from a person point of view and a business point of view it's people being separated for 18 months now you've just got the US is only opening uh, this week and Australia is finally beginning to, to loosen some restrictions as well but people have been separated from big lifetime events from each other yeah and of course uh, citizens have been uh, I mean Australians many Australians have not been able to go home have not been able to see their own country for all this time it's been uh, dreadful, uh, of course. Now, you, you must be aware, uh, notwithstanding the hypocrisy of the world leaders that all flew in their private jets to Glasgow, 
and even between Scottish airports, there's a lot of static in the atmosphere, which you might call anti-aviation propaganda, uh, anti-travel propaganda. Uh, do you think that will affect the travel business in the long term? You mentioned guilt earlier. Uh, there are people, I'm sure, that have been made to feel guilty about wanting to jet off for holidays. Why not stay home in the rain instead? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not immune to it. I am. I, I do sense that it's not, you know, necessarily looked down as good to be burning the planet up. Um, the aviation uh, industry, particularly, like you said, is getting a, a bit of a bashing. But you know what, George? It always just, it makes me fit. It, it just, it's a little bit unfair. It feels like you're being preached to by middle class people who have, have a lot of money, who uh, some of them are the older generation who've already done a lot of traveling. And they're like, well, why don't you get the train down to, for me, for example, to southern Spain to see my parents who live there. What, spend three days on a really, I love a train journey, don't get me wrong, but spend three days on a really expensive train journey with my kids. It's an absolute hassle. And I think, you know, people are blaming, almost saying, well, you can't go for your two weeks on the Costa del Sol or whatever. Well, actually, it's not really us that's doing it. It's the big businesses. It's that 1% that's churning out all the, the, the factory, the, the clothes, the plastic, you know, it's everything like that. And I, I do get that we need to do our bit, that everyone needs to do their bit, but don't punish us for wanting a couple of weeks, uh, you know, break when we're all working really hard. So I do, I, I see two sides of it, but and I, I realise we've got to do something, but it, there is a lot of hypocrisy involved as well. I do, do really believe that. Well, well, well said uh, indeed. Now, there are things you can do uh, online. They could have done COP26 online and had a, a, a carbon footprint of close to zero, but they all wanted to breathe on each other instead, although insisting on people wearing masks elsewhere, talking about hypocrisy. But you, you can't travel uh, virtually. You can't have a holiday online, even if you put goggles on. You'll not actually be in the Costa del Sol. Uh, but one of the things that you can do virtually uh, and may be, a few, may be the future, and we were going to talk to you about it last week, was the, the rock concert, the music concert, the pop concert, the music festival. And, and we were using the ABBA thing as, uh, as an example uh, of that. What's your take on that? I'm, I'm really excited about the ABBA thing. I don't know if you're actually a, a fan of ABBA, George. Are you my an wife ABBA is. Fan? My wife is. She once sent me into uh, a record store to buy an ABBA album. I, I'm still blushing yet. I absolutely love it. And I think it's really interesting, the, the virtual concert. That is something that we've all done a lot of, more of, uh, you know, throughout the pandemic, there's been more, more Zoom calls, more meetings and that sort of thing. And yes, maybe that's good to reduce uh, business travel as well. You know, there is a lot of unnecessary journeys. Um, but, you know, there's nothing that beats standing there in an audience, you know, having an amazing time squashed into a venue with thousands and thousands of people. You know, there is something to be said with that. There's also something 
something to be said with, and with the, the ABBA concerts, there are actually going to be concerts. It's ABBA, the four of them that are not going to be there. It's actually some sort of hologram, isn't it, from, from what I understand. But, oh, is it? You know, we are, yes, it is. So there, as far as I understand, they're the hologram. We, I mean, obviously people will be able to watch it online, but there will actually be an audience. In fact, ABBA, ABBA themselves have said that they're looking forward to sitting in the audience and watching themselves perform as they did in the 1970s, because it's going to look like not them now, but but them back then. But there is something to be said for, you know, what I spoke referenced earlier is like getting people into this country. We have world class events. We have world class football, arguably. We have uh, we definitely have world class theatre. We need these people into our country. We need to rely on them. I, I do understand it needs to be safely, but we need their money. We really do. And we want to go to these concerts ourselves. I think in terms of inbound tourism, last all this August just gone, we had only 14% of our normal levels. And everyone in Europe was beginning to travel uh, more normally. Uh, the levels were much better than that. So we need the ABBA event. We need the, the Euros and the World Cups. You know, we need the cricket, we need the tennis, we need Glastonbury, we need all of this stuff, not just, the, well, to get people in, in here and spending money, but also for fun. You know, this is what life is made of. You know, this is what makes a lot of us really happy, me included. I was prevailed upon to go not once but twice to a theatre show, uh, a rather uh, thin script, uh, but which featured uh, ABBA's music on the West End some years ago now. Um, and the whole point was that everyone dressed up like them and, and got up and danced uh, in the theatre, in their seats, in the aisles and so on. You can't really do that if you're watching this online, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you get you can dance around your 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 living room, and you know many of us do enjoy that thing. And and that's that that is the thing. It means it, it can open ticket sales to a lot more people. So that's good from a from a business point of view. You can have the the live events there, and also the the people watching it virtually around the world. So it's good. But I think we should have not just. I don't know about you, but I really really struggled with the uh, with the lack of of human contact. You know, when we were in in lockdown, and you know it's great to have that option. But let's get people moving let's get people jumping around the audience and dressing up in your, your abba gear and singing and you know and get all that going as well i, I do how, how i'm, I'm tickets, really excited that's how many back. tickets have they sold and what's the target I've got absolutely no idea, but I hope they've sold a lot. I, I actually went to see something uh, similar at the O2. Do you remember about, well, it's only about three or four years ago. It's kind of different uh, with the pan difficult with the pandemic to work out timescales, but I saw something with Elvis and they re recreated Elvis um, with all sorts of screens. And I think it was the London Philharmonic was playing and me and my mum went, which was a, a lovely, lovely thing to do. And it was just really, really special. So yeah, let's bring on more of those events that the holograms, you know, using Modern, modern technology as well, people watching it on Zoom or whatever from all around the world, but also getting bums on seats and, and selling tickets is, is going to be a big, a big deal for us as well. You've sold it. And moreover, I'm going to get a hologram of me so that when I'm gone, people can go to small halls in provincial parts of the country and listen to me give speeches, but it'll just be a hologram like Elvis, who has left the building. Uh, thank you, Lisa. It's always a delight to see you. Someone said uh, on social media, and I read it out, uh, that uh, our poll must have been drawn up by a teenage intern. Somebody else just said it was probably drawn up by Rupert Murdoch, but in fact, it was drawn up by me. And if you couldn't see that, 
you don't know me well enough. Uh, on COP26, do you wish the climate activists, that's the people that are uh, hugging the trees in Glasgow and dancing their rain dances and painting their faces and uh, all kinds of other performative nonsense. On COP26, do you wish the climate activists A, success, 24% of you, B, tickets to Timbuktu, though what Timbuktu did to deserve that, I don't know, but 46% of you want them to fly to Timbuktu next. See a good wash, 30%. Although it would be in a cold shower, of course, because one of their pet hates is hot water. They switched off all the hot water in the conference hall to make their performative point that we shouldn't be having hot showers. Presumably, they ate their quinoa salads entirely cold, although they would have had to be refrigerated, which burns electricity. Uh, and they wouldn't dream of getting on an aeroplane to, oh no, wait, they all got on an aeroplane to come to Glasgow. So you can vote now on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, on my Telegram, and uh, you've got about another 40 minutes to do so. Now, we haven't yet interviewed uh, Donald Trump, though I hope to do so for my forthcoming documentary, 00, How the British Stole an American Presidency. But we do know that he has listened to the show uh, on uh, 105.5 in DC, on FM, on Radio Sputnik. I know that for sure. I don't know how many times he listened, but he definitely listened once. We haven't spoken to him, but we are about to speak to Jason Miller, a former senior advisor to President Donald Trump, who is now the CEO of Twitter's rival, Getter. G-E-T-T-R. If you're not on it yet, you should be. I'm on it. Why place all your eggs in one basket? Especially when that basket is run by, well, baskets. Jason Miller joins me now. Jason, thanks very much indeed for coming on the show. Uh, tell us a bit about Getter first, will you? How does it differ from uh, Twitter and other such platforms? Yeah, George, uh, Getter is fastest growing social media platform in world history, launched on July 4th, our Independence Day, and almost to 3 million users already. Uh, and while I think many people would say that it's a marketplace competitor to Twitter, we think that actually it's a marketplace competitor to all of big tech. And it's a social media platform that allows people to speak their mind politically without the fear of being censored or deplatformed or algorithm out of existence, simply because some uh, suit or some bureaucrat or some Silicon Valley uh, tech oligarch doesn't agree with their position. Uh, very well put. Uh, of course, uh, somebody's in charge of Getter, as they are in charge of these uh, big tech companies that you referred to. Uh, they may or may not wear suits. As a matter of fact, I don't think many of these tech companies are run by people who do wear suits. Every time I see Zuckerberg, he's dressed like a tramp, uh, <laughs> even though he's a multi-billionaire. Uh, but uh, there has to be a suit somewhere. Uh, unless you're saying anybody can say absolutely anything on Getter. Is that how it works? 
No, and in fact, we have what I describe as both a proactive and a robust moderation platform, uh, where obviously our terms of service say that you can't post illegal content. Uh, you can't put up the, the Kathy Griffin-like ISIS beheading videos. You can't put up the Hunter Biden-like pornography videos. Uh, obviously, we're not going to put up with racial or religious epithets. But most people, I would say, agree that that is not what they're looking for when it comes to political free speech. What they want to be able to do is talk about their feelings on uh, opposition to mandates, their concerns about voting integrity, their thoughts on uh, challenges to what the government is telling us that we have to or have to not do as far as complying to certain things. And then obviously where we've seen now, as you point out with Zuckerberg and Dorsey and some of the other different tech oligarchs, they're actually coming in and saying, here's what our worldview is. You have to fit within this construct or you're kicked off. I'll give you a perfect example, the way that Google and you YouTube now either shadow ban or put warnings on people who dare to even raise questions on basic things like um, uh, differing opinions on climate change. And so when it comes to your political beliefs, you're always going to be allowed to express those without the fear of being sent off to digital jail. The difference is, uh, is that, again, we actually respect free speech. We're not trying to force our views on anybody. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, if you think about it, the crossing of the Rubicon, the treatment of Trump. Uh, I'm not a Trump supporter, by the way. I'm even less of a, of a Hillary Clinton supporter, but that's another matter. Uh, but it was a particularly egregious, politically inspired uh, censorship. Uh, Donald Trump was claiming I was robbed in the election. I've claimed that many times in elections myself. Uh, and uh, sometimes I've been right. Uh, but the idea that you, you're censored for that when you're the elected president of the United States it really was crossing a Rubicon, wasn't it? Well, it really was. And it's what I've described as being the single worst year for censorship in American history. This last about a year, year and a half. And we saw in early 2020, where people were raising concerns about COVID and pointing out all the evidence saying that it was from a lab in Wuhan, which Spoiler alert, George, it did come from a lab in Wuhan, or as we saw even moving into the summer uh, or even into the, the early fall with the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, the fact that you had both big tech and big media collude, actively collude to shut down and censor that story. And that was a massive disaster. In fact, upwards of one out of every six Biden voter said after the election, they would have reconsidered their vote and gone a different direction if they knew about the, the decades long allegations of grift and corruption within the Biden family. And then, of course, they deplatformed President Trump altogether in January. And so this is. Uh, and then there was the Hunter Biden uh, laptop story that that turned out to be absolutely true, but was completely suppressed. Uh, as completely as any dictatorship could ever have suppressed the story. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's what I was referring to with uh, the, the grift and corruption. And again, so people understand and just kind of unpack this for a moment. It wasn't so much that, that Hunter Biden made a couple of dodgy videos um, with uh, on his on his laptop or on his his iPhone. That's not the issue here. That's embarrassing. But that is, that's not really pertinent to Joe Biden in the election. The issue at hand were Joe Biden's global business dealings or the global business dealings by the Biden family in which, say, 10 percent was allegedly set aside for the big guy, meaning Biden, or Frank or James, Joe's brothers, who've made money off of selling access to him for decades. That would bring back the Hillary Clinton 
uh, allegations of concern over the Clinton Global Initiative, over the Clinton Foundation, that Joe Biden, a little bit of a different construct than the Clintons, but is no difference, uh, different as far as selling access to his name. Now we see where Hunter Biden, lo and behold, is selling paintings for five hundred thousand dollars a piece and you wonder why because people know they're buying access uh, and then there's this uh, rapidly collapsing uh, russia gate hoax about which i'm uh, uh, about to start making a, a documentary film how the british stole an american presidency how long before they start uh, shoring up the steel dossier because it needs some shoring up well, that one's going to be real tough to uh, that one's going to be real tough to defend. And I think with regard to Christopher Steele, I think if there's any justice in the, in this world, at a certain point he'll have to truly stand and face the music. But we know at least two of his compatriots. Uh, well, one formerly has been uh, arrested for lying to the investigators, but we know that there are others who are in the crosshairs as we speak. But the fact of the matter is, is that things were made up. They were packaged. Uh, there were uh, salacious allegations made against President Trump. And the only collusion that actually happened in the 2016, 2016 campaign was between the Clinton campaign, the DNC, and a foreign entity. And so we have to make sure this well, doesn't happen. It, it turns out that the, the, the Clinton camp and the a man who was uh, feeding steel had far more extensive Russian connections uh, than anybody connected to Trump. But maybe that's for another uh, day. Uh, now, um, is Trump involved in Getter? Is he on it? Has he got any money in it? Uh, so he is not. He's not part of the platform. We, you know, we worked with him over the summer and into the early fall to try to come up with a deal to get him on board. weren't able to get to the right number. Uh, he's ultimately the best deal maker. So he decided to go a different direction. And so at some point next year, uh, from what he has announced, he wants to have his own platform. But you know, I'll tell you one thing that we're uh, we've seen massive growth since President Trump said that he was going to launch his own media company. In fact, we're up at about 135 percent just over the past two weeks or so. So we're seeing great growth. People are coming off the sidelines, getting back engaged. And we think that Trump supporters will continue to look at Getter and say this is a superior platform. But, you know, George, in addition to the U.S., which the U.S., really only about 45% of our global platform. Uh, when you look around the rest of the world, Brazil's at about 15%, Japan's at about 13%. Overall, the non-U.S. markets are about 55% of our global growth. We're continuing to take off. Well, we're currently streaming on Twitter. This conversation is going out live on Twitter now and on Facebook and YouTube and so on. But I think we'll, we'll start to stream the show on Getter. Uh, I'm uh, a fan. Uh, now, um, Trump starting his own media company seems to me to have some difficulties uh, attached to it. It'll be difficult for him to claim uh, that he's defending free speech when obviously he's partisan and uh, not many people other than his own supporters will go to his own media company. Do you think he made the right call on that? Well, I think he should have joined our platform and what I told him for a couple of reasons. One, because it is really darn tough to launch one of these platforms. Um, the other thing, too, is it's really darn tough to, to keep the platforms going, everything dealing with security and moderation all the different things that go into it. And also with President Trump, another part of the angle is part of my pitch that was saying then this way he doesn't have to worry about the management of it. 
come and join a platform. That way, nobody else is saying that it's the quote unquote Trump platform. It's a platform that he's joining, meaning that he can get people from all around the world. But George, here's the thing I know about President Trump, having worked for him in both of the 2016 and 2020 campaigns, pretty much anything he sets his mind to, he's usually successful uh, more often than not. Uh, I'd never bet against President Trump. And as I told him on the phone when I spoke with him a couple of days ago, I hope he's very successful, just, you know, uh, not too successful. <laughs> when was he like, does he take advice? I mean, you're right, he's very single-minded and uh Many things he's done have been very successful. Uh, some things he's done have been disastrously unsuccessful, of course. Uh, but does he take advice when you were an advisor? Did you feel he was listening to you? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, he will take advice and take input from a lot of people that would that would probably surprise you. But you know, one of the dynamics when you're around President Trump is you're expected to have an opinion. You're expected to be able to provide some of that advice. And as long as you thought through and you have some rationale and some reasoning behind it, he'll listen to you. And so plenty of times I would go and say, Mr. President or then candidate Mr. Trump, uh, here's another way to go and do it. Here's a way to be more effective and to uh, be more efficient. Or here's another way, another angle or another approach on something. As long as you have a good idea and you understand what he's trying to get at, but you have another path that will help him get there in a better fashion, uh, he'll listen all the time. I think with anyone, whether it's President Trump or any other candidate, probably since the beginning of time, if you just go to them and simply say no, or this is a bad idea, or don't do this, you can get tuned out pretty easily. Uh, but if you're smart, you're intuitive, you're looking around corners, and you're able to think unconventionally in the way that he does, then you can have a really good relationship. Is he going to run, Jason? I hope so. Uh, I believe that he ultimately does run in 2024, and I'll be uh, one of his biggest allies and, uh, and cheerleaders in that effort. I think if you talk with him, uh, he definitely comes across as somebody who is going to run in 2024. And that's part of the reason, actually, why we launched Getter. Uh, I'm frequently asked, what was the biggest mistake from the 2020 campaign? What should we have done differently? Now I say I wish we had had another platform, another social media platform ready to go for President Trump uh, going into the 2020 campaign cycle. That way, when you have that Hunter Biden laptop scandal, then you're not censored or deplatformed by Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and these in YouTube, and these other platforms. You have a free communication channel. It's part of the reason why we launched Getter. We've seen it take off to so much success. I've not been close to him. You have. Uh, is he robust enough, you think, to uh, withstand the rigors? Mind you, looking at Joe Biden, how robust do you have to be? Well, exactly. And uh, Joe can't even stay awake in, in the meetings that he's having. So, uh, you know, so I don't uh, I wouldn't exactly put any uh, put, wouldn't put robust and Joe Biden um, anywhere in the same sentence. Uh, but with regard to President Trump, uh, when I saw him uh, talk to him a couple of days ago, but then when I saw him out on the, the golf course about a month or so back, uh, he's moving around um, uh, just as well, if not better, someone half his age uh, hitting the golf balls. He's, he's very active, uh, getting a lot of uh, both rest, but then also exercise in his time out of the White House, and he sure looks a heck of a lot better than Joe Biden. Jason Miller, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Hope we can uh, talk again. On COP26, do you wish the climate activists A, success, B, tickets to Timbuktu, C, a good wash? That'll be coming to an end soon. Uh, not the good wash, but the poll. Uh, so get your vote in uh, quickly. Now, some social media. Crow Hawk 
I grew up during the threat of the imminent approach of the next ice age. Then it was acid rain. Then it was global warming. Now it's climate change. Listen, Crowhawk, I have lived long enough to be told uh, that uh, red wine was good for you and red wine was bad for you. Red meat was good for you and red meat was bad for you. I've been here long enough to have been told, buy a diesel car, it's better for the environment. Then don't buy a diesel car. In fact, pretty soon, you won't be able to drive a diesel car. You might get stoned in the street if you do it. I've lived through so many of these fads uh, that I don't know what to believe anymore. And in the 1970s, like you, I was told we were headed into a new ice age. Now, admittedly, that was 50 years ago, but some of these decisions that are being pledged at uh, COP26 are from 50 years from now, 30 years, 50 years from now. How do we know that this current warming will not reverse itself as climate has constantly done. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been told to fear a new ice age in my own lifetime, indeed my adult lifetime. Uh, fundamentals says the term carbon footprint was invented by big gas and oil companies, a term that has put responsibility onto the person. Very good point. Stephen Cunningham says the ice age was a natural phenomenon. Hmm. Greenhouse gases by the multi-billions of tons since the Industrial Revolution is not. Sell your BP shares quickly. They'll be stranded assets. I have no BP shares or shares for that matter in anything else. Uh, uh, Crowhawk, again, I'm for controlling CO2 emissions, but I'm not going to be told it's my fault by those flying around in private jets between bombing the planet into oblivion. Tweet of the night. Uh, user 1990, Galloway is dead wrong about making people reveal their identity to Twitter. Get a warrant. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I promise you, I will get the identity of Mr. quote-unquote Aidan Foster, who threatened to murder me and murder my children. 
And you better hope the police get to him before some of my friends do. MFG56, your poll is missing the important point. I wish them a good education, one that allows them to investigate these climate change claims, one that allows them to think for themselves, not to follow the herd just because it's fashionable. And Yinka says, I find Twitter a pointless platform. I initially went there when Trump was there. I figured if an old man can work it out, so could I. But I have cancelled myself. It really is an awful, awful platform. Well, I, I'm on it a lot. I'm actually this close to having 370,000 followers. Uh, if you haven't followed me, uh, please do follow me on Twitter. Get me to 370,000, uh, which means that everything I send out on Twitter has a bigger circulation than virtually any newspaper in the country and a bigger audience than virtually any current affairs or news program in the country. And that's important if you'd grown up as I did in an era when the only way you could get your message out was printing it on a piece of paper and trying to uh, convince someone to take it. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I've kept Terence in Norwich waiting. Terence, go ahead. Hello, Mr. Galloway. How are you? I hope you're well. I'm good. Yes, lovely. Thank you. Um, my, my point firstly begins with an observation. Having looked at your work over the last 40 years and talked to friends of the Mitchells and McDonald's in your own Dundee, the beloved Dundee. Mm -hmm. And as, as a constituent MP, you've earned your gold-plated pension from the British Parliament. I have no doubt of that. Now, my point is this. My point is this. Should Owen Paterson have lined his pockets with half a million pounds, uh, not interested in his constituents or what they were up to? Friends of mine in the north of Ireland told me he was called What's Going Owen? Uh, should this man not only be stopped having a pension, but taking the court for criminal contempt of parliament, if that is such a thing. Because I feel that the man who works empty in the bins for 35 years and takes a paltry uh, pension is, for me, the best man in the world. Because he or she, they earn their money. You've earned your money uh, as an MP for your constituents. And I've talked to your constituents over the years and around the country and everywhere else. Because I've kept an eye on your workings. And I'm very impressed with what you I don't agree with everything you say. I think some of it is, is, is either banter or completely wrong, in my opinion. But the one thing I will say about you is that you earn your money. The, the pension, I come back to Patterson. Should he have his pension stopped? Because he was not representing his constituents, and he's up to, he's up to the tune of 500,000 in his backside pocket. Well, uh, uh, thanks uh, for your kind words, Terence. I'm going to half disappoint you. Uh, I don't generally approve of people losing their pension. They uh, paid for their pension, uh, <coughs> rather a significant proportion, actually, in Parliament of your wages goes into the pension fund, which, as you rightly say, is a handsome one. Uh, I get 27 fiftieths of my last wage as an MP. Uh, so that adds up to, uh, before tax, because of course I'm taxed on my pension, about £25,000 uh -huh. a year. And that's a good uh -huh. pension uh -huh. uh, uh, uh -huh. compared to other people. I don't generally agree with taking people's pensions because they paid for those pensions long before they did the bad thing that they did that has got them in the soup and got you asking this question this evening. 
But I do think uh -huh. there is a case for a criminal investigation uh, into his conduct. I'm astounded that the Tories chose the Owen Patterson Hill to die on. Uh, this is a man yes, indeed, indeed. that yeah. took 500 thousand pounds from lobbying companies and did not properly register that whilst badgering uh -huh. government departments uh, to uh, <laughs> accede to uh, the lobbying efforts he was making on behalf of two companies that the civil servants in Whitehall did not know he was working for and coining Indeed. Indeed. big, big money, 100,000 a year is far more contract. than the wage for being an MP. He was getting uh -huh. that on uh -huh. top of his wage as an MP. So I actually think uh, that his behaviour was borderline, if not actually criminal. And for the Tories to choose his hill to die on was a grotesque political mistake. And everyone who was involved in making that mistake may find that the Tories pay a very high price for it. Of course, uh, corruption, venality, is not uh, uh -huh. confined to the Tory side of the House. No, Terence. no, 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 Last no you're, point right. you're absolutely you. right. You, you're absolutely right, and I'm, I'm very much behind you 100% on Manderson, 100%. He, he always he borrowed money on a property, if you remember, yeah. off one of his friends outside politics, and there's so much... There's so much intrigue and dirty politics going on. I think Stammer has got a, a job. He's doing everything by saying nothing at the moment. Mm. But these, these, these borderline criminals have no place in representing the, the man who cleans the streets, the teachers and such. Uh, thank you for your answer, Mr. Galloway. Thank you, Terence. Uh, very, very good call indeed. Let me try and squeeze in quickly Simon in London. Go ahead, Simon. Hi, doing George. You okay? Good, sir. Thanks very much. That's good. Is it just me or does anyone else think that this green insanity is a case of scraping the barrel, effectively? The US took all these countries, these Western countries, the UK included, into a needless Middle Eastern wars over the last 20 years, resulting in the 2008 financial crisis, the banking sector going wild, shares in Wall Street shot up on the day the first bombs landed in Iraq, by the way, which is no coincidence, and um, with insane gambling and the complete breakdown of our, our economy. Uh, meanwhile, China, and I'm a libertarian, as you know, despite its many faults and uh, invested heavily in industry and, and manufacturing. As a result, they now have all the jobs and uh, an effective industry that we should have had. Our governments have constantly lied and made the wrong decisions in the field. And as a result, there's no money. And uh, this brings me to my other point. Uh, following the Grenfell tragedy in 2017, local councils were exposed for allowing illegal planning which was highly flammable, containing all sorts of lethal toxins, poison chemicals, and so on, uh, to be installed in properties. Instead of taking real action, the government allowed councils to take measures that has recently seen thousands of unsuspecting homeowners being forced into paying for safety measures to correct this cladding, with many being put into huge debt, and even being some of them being forced into homelessness. It's terrible. Uh, and as usual, the government has simply resolved themselves and their accomplices of any liability, and I'm pretty sure the banks were very happy with the outcome as well. Now, to draw parallels, these clowns from Insulate Britain, uh, the, these protesters on the M25, who have nothing but sheer contempt for property ownership and strive, it seems to strive for pure, far, far left, uh, uh, well, well, I don't know, Simon. I, I, I need to go to the news now, so I need to interrupt you. I don't know how far left it is. I don't know what's left about stopping workers getting to their jobs, asking workers to take cold showers and eat cold dinners and stop going on hot holidays. I'm not sure what's left 
about that. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate. Great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland, and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? I wanted to say a few words before introducing Rachel about our second poll of the evening. I told you earlier, uh, my next documentary film will be called, working title, might not be the final title, 00. It's about the Christopher Steele uh, dossier and how Britain stole an American presidency. It is about how Britain was the foreign country interfering in US political elections, not Russia after all. It's predicated on the spectacular explosion, implosion, collapse of the Russia Gate hoax, about which I'll ask Rachel in a minute. But there's the poll now. Did Britain interfere in the US presidential election? A yes, B no. Think about it. I think how many millions of words, billions of words, were published and spoken about how Putin, the Kremlin, Russia, had stolen America's election when all the time it came from next door, my next door neighbor in MI5, MI6 across the river. It was them that stole the first two years at least of Donald Trump's presidency with a gigantic Russiagate hoax that has now completely collapsed. So get voting. Did Britain interfere in the US presidential election? Now, it's one of the highlights of my week uh, to introduce Rachel Blevins. Remember her name. She's even got a blue tick now on Twitter. I tell you, this young woman is going places. The White House, I hope, Rachel, Thank you for joining us. Let me ask you about that question first. Tell us how spectacular is the collapse of the Russiagate hoax? My goodness, I feel like we've been talking about Russiagate for years and years now because we literally have, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you have to go back and look at the media coverage and how sensational it was. I mean, talk about 2015, 2016, when this Steele dossier came to light. The claims were so outrageous that there were plenty of people who thought, well, there's no way this could be true. It turns out it wasn't true. But I mean, just the claim that Donald Trump, Donald Trump of all people, was some sort of Russian agent, the fact that people in the mainstream media like Rachel Maddow literally ran with this and acted as if it was fact, didn't question it, just immediately sold it to their viewers and that it became this claim that Russia had hacked our elections, that Russia had interfered in U.S. politics. It was kind of one of those cases of you repeat it enough times and then it becomes the truth. And that was how a number of people here in this country accepted 
accepted it. And even when those stories start to fall apart, you don't get the corrections then, right? You don't get the media organizations coming out saying, hey, our bad, we were wrong. We didn't do the basic aspects of journalist integrity when we were covering this story. Instead, you get them kind of shrugging it off and moving on to the next sensationalized part of it and not at all vowing to do better next time around because on their end, they got those millions of hits. They got the money, the advertising dollars, everything that went into it. They have no remorse for the fact that it wasn't true. They have no remorse for how it would have changed our politics if they hadn't covered it. And, you know, it is interesting that we're now finding out about this. And the reaction from the media seems to be just kind of, all right, let's move on. Another day, another story, so to speak. Yeah. And the Washington Post have at least uh, flagged up uh, that the indictment against Steele's chief witness uh, brought by the FBI uh, on the fact that he lied to them, that all the stories that he told them were made up that none of the sources he claimed he had actually existed. Uh, this is devastating, or ought to be, to any journalist of integrity. At least the Post has said this casts doubt on our <laughs> previous reportage of this matter. And cast doubt, it certainly does. But Maddow made a career and many millions of dollars in salary in her extended contract out of breaking down and crying tears on TV live on MSNBC as she became the chief tribune of the lie that Russia was running President Trump as an agent. She said nothing. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly how it goes. I mean, you also have to remember Rachel Maddow was the same one who sat there and told her viewers that Russia was going to turn off the U.S. power grid in the middle of winter and leave us all to freeze and die and then never really followed up on that one either. But yes, exactly. It's the accountability of those talking heads. And, you know, when you look at what actually happened, especially when it comes to the 2016 election, the reason that Hillary Clinton did not win was because of Hillary Clinton in large part. You know, you had someone like Donald Trump who tried to, you know, transition himself and make it look like he was anti-establishment. And he went and he had campaign rallies across the country in towns and cities that Hillary Clinton would never, ever go to. You know, he talked to the average American. He made them feel like he was in their corner. That's why he gained so much support. But then you have Hillary Clinton over here saying, oh, well, Trump could only have run because he was a Russian agent and Russia interfered because there were claims that, you know, you had different Russian troll farms buying ads on Facebook. I mean, it, it is so ridiculous that the story itself would have had to fall apart. Now, it is falling apart. But I mean, it's just crazy to think of how scandalous all of this was and the fact that the actual major players in it, there's has been no sort of accountability for them, especially you look at the fact that the FBI is now looking pretty ridiculous because their top witness, it turns out he lied about everything he said. I mean, it. I, I think this is one of those cases where all of those bricks are going to continue to fall as we go along. Yeah, it had serious consequences. I mean, it was a hoax like the WMD hoax that fooled the world into agreeing to the, or those that did agree to invade and occupy Iraq with catastrophic results, this, the, mm -hmm. the Russiagate hoax 
also had consequences. For a start, it made Trump, maybe he would have done it anyway, because as you rightly say, he was posing as a man of the people, the blue-collar champion, uh, the anti-establishment figure, even though he was a creature of the New York City lagoon. Uh, he <laughs> was able to do that, and he might or might not have done the things that he promised he would do in the election campaign of 2016. He was forced to abandon those things and in fact take the opposite course just to prove that he was not a Russian agent. He levied more sanctions on Russia than anyone had ever done. He confronted Russia militarily than uh, in a way that uh, nobody had ever done uh, before. His uh, anti-Russian policy uh, was the opposite of what he claimed it was going to be uh, in the election, all because of the hoax. He also continued yeah. the wars that he said he was going to withdraw from to prove that he wasn't a Russian agent. So uh, these lies, this hoax, had very serious consequences. Oh, absolutely. And you make excellent points there. And I think it is interesting how they kind of backed him into a corner to say, well, anything you do is going to be looked at through the lens of what would Russia think? What would Putin think? Would he approve of this? Because that's exactly how it was portrayed by so much of the media. And the only times that they really wanted to praise Donald Trump was when he was bombing Syria. That's when they said that he actually looked presidential. And yet at the same time, when it came to as you mentioned, his claims that he was going to end those endless wars. Well, when he wanted to pull back on troops, then the question became, well, what would Russia think? How much would Russian influence increase in the Middle East if the U.S. pulls out, if they don't do exactly as they have been doing for the last two decades? And it's almost for all of those in the U.S. establishment that are looking at like someone like Donald Trump coming into the White House it's almost brilliant on their end because they back him into a corner and they say, look, you ran on these promises. You're not going to be able to fulfill any of these promises because we have the ultimate checkmate of being able to say that you're a Russian agent and go after you for that, even when at the end of the day, it is their bluff that they are calling, essentially. Do the people in America know that this was all made in Britain, in fact, made through the wall next door to me? Next door to you. Yeah, yeah, I would say ultimately, no, the the average American has kind of moved on and they have either they're in the camp of buying the claims of Russiagate and they don't really care about it anymore. And they've just assumed that that's how, you know, elections are run here, even though I would I would think that if you really did think that Russia had a hand in deciding our election in 2016, that you would be calling to make sure that they are much more secure moving into future elections. But at the end of the day, I think it's one of those issues where people either have decided that they believe it or they don't believe it. And they've kind of moved on to a certain extent. So, you know, there's not a lot of talk about how, you know, people in the UK could be involved or even how this is going to play out if they think, you know, it's like it was one of those things where we saw back in 2020 with that election where all of a sudden you had U.S. intelligence agencies coming out and saying there was no interference. Everything was secure. And it's like, 
well, wait a second, y'all just spent the last four years selling us that this election was completely interfered with by Russia. And now all of a sudden, two days after the 2020 election, you're saying that everything's fine. I mean, I, I do not know how the American people can buy it, but a large number of them do. Uh, not in Virginia. Uh, they had uh, an election this week. Uh, and it turns out that there are a basket of deplorables in the great state of Virginia, <laughs> and they could only have rejected uh, this other creature of the Clinton Lagoon, Terry McAuliffe. They, only, they could only have rejected him because they're all deplorable, racist, sexist, misogynist, everyist, everyism that the Democrats <laughs> can muster. That's not a great plan for the midterms calling the voters all these bad names. Exactly. You, you would think that they would have learned that by now. You know, what's really interesting about Virginia is that this was a state where Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, he tried to paint the Republican candidate as an extension of Donald Trump. And he ran at it by saying, you're electing Trump, you're electing Trump. He was so focused on that, that he wasn't focused on the actual issues. And that's what the people of Virginia wanted to focus on. And, you know, to his point, Glenn Youngkin actually went in there. He focused on the issues. He didn't even try to necessarily tie himself to Trump and say, oh, I'm Trump's buddy. But what he did was he focused on the issues that people wanted to talk about. He focused on, you know, a big one was education. And you have families across this country that have had to have their kids on virtual school for so much of the last year. Now they're finally going back to school and they're worried about the state of education. And so he went in there and he said, hey, I want the parents to be more involved in their children's education. I want them to have more of a say. And that got people to get out and vote. And so I think that, you know, Democrats could, not that they will, but they could learn an important lesson from this election, which is that they are going to have to run on more than just anti-Trump policies, especially, and this is going to be tricky for them now that they've had, you know, the Democratic majority in the House, in the Senate, and in the White House, and we've seen how much they've actually gotten done with that. But they are going to have to find a path that is not just anti-Trump, Whereas Republicans are kind of learning that they can look more on their policies, not just look at Trump, because that was one of the things that Youngkin did that he did well, was that he tried to kind of cater to both sectors of the GOP, both those who are frustrated with the election outcome and those who want to move on from, from it. And he catered to that in a way that a lot of Republicans could learn from moving forward. Now, lastly, and I tread delicately into this because uh, I don't know the woman. But I watched Nancy Pelosi uh, at the podium this week. And I want, I mean, we've gotten used to Joe Biden uh, letting off, trumping in front of royals in, uh, in, in Glasgow and so on. We've gotten used to him looking like he's lost. Uh, but when I watched Nancy Pelosi, I didn't know if she was drunk or unwell. Uh, what's wrong with that woman? <laughs> I was going to say, how much time do you have here? Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she is the perfect example of why we need term limits in this country, because this woman has literally been in Congress longer than I've been alive. And she is, I mean, she's third in line to the presidency. You think about the fact that if Joe Biden passes away tomorrow and then Kamala Harris does, 
we have Nancy Pelosi, like she is our president. It is crazy to me that they have continued to allow this woman to be House Speaker because you're right, she gets up there, she gives these ridiculous speeches that are all over the place and it really makes you wonder, why has this woman not retired? With someone with her kind of wealth and with the millions of dollars in wealth that she has, you would think that she would want to go retire on an island somewhere, you know, enjoy her life, enjoy her grandkids. I. I don't know why these are the top leaders of our country, but I can imagine that to a number of other countries in the world, it looks pretty ridiculous. And trust me, it looks just as ridiculous here at home. Thank you very much, as always, Rachel Blevins, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's go to Long Island. Why wouldn't you? And talk to Rashid. Go ahead, Rashid. Thank you, George. How are you? Uh, Good, thanks. I'm actually calling from Long Beach, California, but I, well, I that's like even to... that's even more <laughs> exciting than Long Island. Go ahead, Rashid. Sure. What I'd like to tell you is that where where do things stand in the U.S. elections between now and the 2022 elections? Because 2022 is still going to be congressional elections and uh, state governorships and other municipalities. So, so even though the specter of Donald Trump will be there, mm. he won't actually be involved. He won't be in on it. the ballot. No. That's so. The primary motive would be because uh, at this point, uh, for those of us who you know have little faith in government, we see the deep state and the Democratic Party as the same entity. And from that point of view, the all-out assault will be on any any populist candidate who tries to oppose those kind of authoritarian par- uh, policies that are coming currently out of the Democratic Party. And since most of the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, and the media speak from the same uh, talking points. Their goal would be to use the kind of methods or talking points of use in the past, racism, ignorance, the kind of insults that they have of the people rather than talking to the people. So for, going forward between now and 22, is going to be an all-out assault in the media and the uh, people who are within the party or speak for the party to attack, I guess, uh, potentially Republican populists, the uh, people who oppose what they call rhinos or Republicans in name only who don't kind of represent the policies of the American people. And unfortunately, many of those populist policies are exactly in line with working class people in the United States who in the past looked to the Democrats. So in their own way, they're shooting the potential uh, voters in the foot of the people who they think they would need to elect them. They're going to reject them and they're going to push people more towards those populists. So the well, deep I, I think you out. have perfectly described the paradigm. Uh, the, the, it's not that Trump and other Republican populists really mean it or insofar as they would do any of the things that they say they would do, they would be doing from their heart. They don't have the interests of, uh, of uh, Joe Public in Peoria truly in their hearts. Their hearts are right next to their pocketbooks. It's that they are prepared to at least talk the language of the working class of America in the flyover territory between Long Island and Long Beach, uh, California. The heartland of America is crying out for these very populist, I would argue radical, political solutions to America's problems. Uh, These populists are being left that entire field to themselves. The people who should be standing up for that radical agenda 
have gone down the rabbit hole of the Clinton, Biden, Obama Democratic Party. Am I right? Uh, you're perfectly right. And as your previous guest pointed out, it's a transatlantic phenomenon. As you talked about the Steele report and the significance, we're fighting a Clinton Blairite madness exactly. that is a, that is opposed to people. Uh, it doesn't matter if they see themselves as conservatives or they see themselves as liberals. It's opposed to working people. And as long as they drive their agenda to try to dismiss this you know, vast group, uh, they might be leadership in the Republican Party who want to tap into it. But they're going to have a lot of growing grassroots populists, first Republican now, but in the future Democrats, who are going to speak the anti-corporate line. And eventually, uh, this, you know, if they're not careful, this beast will eat both parties. Now, I have to point out that if you go back to about 2012, when Ron Paul made his run for the president, 2008 and in 2012, he, uh, not through him, but his followers created the Tea Party. And very quickly, the corporate side took over the Tea Party to control its narrative. That's what they're going to try to do very hard, not only dismiss these populists, but try to steal the narrative from the populace. Now, I'd like one, one more thing, George. The young woman from Virginia who won the lieutenant governorship is African-American. Yeah. And she was accused of supporting white privilege in her campaign. <laughs> That's how mad these people yeah, are. Yeah, of course it is. They, 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 are, they throw these uh, epithets, these insults at people uh, that uh, quite manifestly in her case, uh, the insult could not possibly be true. A black woman, lieutenant governor, is accused of racism, of supporting white supremacy. But that's the problem for the establishment. They have no solutions to the problems that the people are facing. They can try they and hijack no. things, they can try and buy things, they can use their corporate power to buy media time and so on. But eventually, the people will conclude and act, I hope, on the very clear evidence uh, that the Biden-Blair uh, axis in politics has absolutely no real answers to the problems of the people. Last word to you, Rashid. Well, first, the emperor has no clothes, and that the Biden Blairite, that whole uh, perspective, has no interest in ever solving the problems of the working people. It's a facade, a veneer they throw on that they've success successfully fed us for decades, since the end of the World War II. The problem is that the, the bridges, the houses, the economies are falling apart, and they can't maintain that veneer the way it successfully had in the past. Rashid, you're a great caller. Thanks. Uh, don't be a stranger. Call me anytime. Now I'm joined for his penultimate appearance by the cleverest young man in England, James Giles. James, so much to talk to you about and so little time. But let's start with the big story of the week. Why did the Tories choose to, to die on the hill uh, named Owen Patterson? Well, it's staggering, isn't it? And it's unfathomable as to quite why there was a three-line whip. Tories marched up the hill by Boris Johnson, told if you don't support this man, you will uh, lose your funding for your constituency parties to only be left up the hill, Boris having done a runner, uh, and been left lo looking like fools. Um, ultimately, 
there is a problem with parliamentary standards. Uh, Boris Johnson himself has been investigated more times in recent years than any other MP. But the Tories, in trying to do away with the Standards Commissioner, who they perceive as partisan, has conflated it with the issue of Owen Paterson. Instead of, exactly. instead of voting during peacetime, as it were, yeah. when one of their own wasn't under threat, they've decided to lump the two together. And as a result, fine, North Shropshire, they've got a very healthy majority. But in places like Old Bexley and Sidcup, where there are also going to be by-elections, this will have ramifications in those by-elections and also in the nationwide opinion polls we're seeing a shift. Did they plan this or stumble into it? Uh, Patterson's uh, a man that's experienced tragedy. His wife committed suicide recently. Was there just a kind of spontaneous feeling in the Tory ranks that... They needed to circle their wagons around this man. Or did they plan? Because I could make, if you, if you gave me 20 minutes now, I could make a speech damning and denouncing the system of complaints and standards and privileges, which is unfit for purpose. But to do it, as you say, by conflating it with the Owen Patterson case, which looks to me from the outside as clear a case of wrongdoing as it's possible to imagine, and as lucrative as it is possible to imagine. Aye. I mean, Owen Patterson was lobbying for Randox, who you and I have both used for our COVID testing, travelling abroad. They handed lucrative government contracts as a result of his lobbying. So for him to play the victim in all this and say, you know, he's been unfairly targeted, challenged, is frankly for the birds. But as for the Tories, they've got a problem here because ultimately what they should have done back in 2010 was enacted proper recall and actually had the Standards Commissioner being the electorate deciding whether or not they had confidence in their elected representatives. Because since the expenses scandal and since all of these Ipsos, Ipsos have been set up to watch over MPs, instead of MPs thinking to themselves, morally, will my electorate put up with this? They're instead thinking, am I within the letter of the rules? Can I get away with it? And actually, it's time to put all of these quangos and all of these bodies, I think, to one side and actually hand the power back to who should be MPs' bosses, and that is the electorate. Yeah, I, I signed, uh, I'm on the face of the bill, Zach Goldsmith's bill for recall, uh, which was, to some extent, gutted uh, of much of its essence, but still exists so that, for example, if Owen Patterson hadn't resigned, we could be now out collecting signatures in his constituency of North Shropshire uh, to force a by-election. At least we got that. But there should be total recall. An MP should be able to be recalled by their constituents at any time by gathering enough signatures to demand uh, a by-election. Well, without doubt, and this is the lunacy of the rules, you've got Owen Paterson who, yes, lobbied for a company to get lucrative government contracts, clearly did wrong, potentially facing, had he not have resigned, a recall petition. Meanwhile, you've got Claudia Webb, who's been sentenced and found guilty of harassment, including threatening to throw acid over a constituent's face, not facing recall while she goes through a lengthy appeals process. And you've got Rob Roberts, the MP for Dellin, who around six months ago was found guilty of being a sex pest, 
sending inappropriate uh, images and messages to one of his male staffers, who still sits in the House of Commons now... He's just been readmitted just been into readmitted the Conservative Party. ..to the Tory party and faces no consequence whatsoever. And actually, mm. all three of those things, if you were to put those cases to an ordinary voter, they'd look at being a sex pest, they'd look at throwing acid in someone's face or threatening... She, to, yeah, she didn't throw no, no, acid in anyone's face. threatening to throw acid in someone's face. And they'd look at lobbying to get millions of pounds of government money. And in all three cases, anyone in their right mind would surely look and say... There's something wrong here. Now, you mentioned that North Shropshire is a very healthy Conservative majority, but that's partly because all the other parties split the opposition vote. What if a white knight in a white suit like Martin Bell can be agreed on by the other parties and stand as the anti-corruption candidate? Could that upset the apple cart? Is there any prospect of an agreement on that? Uh, th there isn't, uh, partly because electoral law has changed since 1997 when Martin Bell caused that big upset in Tatton against Neil Hamilton. The way in which data now is regulated, I mean, everyone knows about GDPR, makes it far harder for parties to work together cross-party. But you've also got a wider problem there is, you know, if someone in a white suit did decide to enter the fray in North Shropshire and, you know, people are banding about names like Rory Stewart, which, you know, frankly won't appeal to a lot of Labour's voters and quite a few Lib Dems too. But this is your problem. You've got, let's say, Labour and the Lib Dems did team up and say, right, we're going to put someone in there who's anti-corruption. They're likely to be a Remainer if they're supported by Labour and the Liberal Democrats. So let's say, you know, North Shropshire's a relatively elderly constituency. You've got a 70-year-old Tory voter, lifelong Tory, disgusted with what Owen Paterson's done, but a strong Brexiteer. What do they do? Do they back the Tories because they want Brexit, you know, seeing Brexit through, they believe in what Boris is doing? Or do they, to send a message about Owen Paterson, back someone who, apart from their position on sleaze, actually doesn't share any of their politics whatsoever? Well, of course... Uh... There's not only sleaze in the Conservative Party. Seven Labour members of Parliament have been sent to prison sure. over the last uh, 12 years or so. Mm. Uh, so uh, sleaze cuts across mm. party political boundaries. And that's before you talk about Tony Blair earning £100 million, uh, about Peter Mandelson's life and times and so on. So... The idea that sleaze is somehow just a Tory thing uh, has just been, um, to some extent, gutted in Scotland also, where, where the uh, publisher of the collected works of Nicola Sturgeon's uh, book, uh, Women Hold Up Half the Sky, uh, the publisher has just been raided by the fraud squad because it got a huge sum in Scottish government money in, in what presumably is thought to be questionable circumstances. The whole British political system's pretty rotten, isn't it? The whole political system is rotten. You've got a Labour Party that's thinking about bringing back Keith Vaz, the washing machine salesman, in Leicester East. 
You've got a Conservative Party that is going from scandal to scandal, yet still miraculously manages to stay ahead in the polls. You've got the Liberal Democrats who appear to have disappeared off the face of the earth, with the exception of Cheshire and Amersham. And what could have been a massive moment for them very quickly fell by the wayside. And actually, quietly up the rear, you've got the Greens slowly making gains, regularly now overtaking the Liberal Democrats in the polls. Now, in an election atmosphere, that wouldn't actually translate into 9% vote for the Greens across the country. No. But what it does say is that the political system, uh, in the eyes of more and more people, is broken, does need change, and people are looking, in a way, for a none-of-the-above option. Uh, and does the Reform Party represent that in uh, old uh, Sid Cup, Bexley and old Sid Cup? It could dent the Tories' majority in old Bexley. And actually, I think Owen Paterson's uh, issue will resonate more with voters there than it will in North Shropshire. Locally, Owen Paterson was quite well regarded as an MP. He did a lot around farming, a lot around rural broadband and boosting the town. And so even though people there think he's done wrong, they're still quite content voting Tory, or at least from the people that have been spoken to on broadcast media here in Britain. In Old Bexley, however, which is a marginal-ish seat, you know, seats have changed hands with a bigger majority than the Tories currently hold in Old Bexley and Sig Cup. Richard Tice is putting forward a very energetic campaign. His slogan is, send a message to He's Westminster. He's the leader of the Reform Party. Taking over from Nigel Farage. It's very unlikely that they'll win the seat, but if they can take 6 to 10% of the vote, that will send a very clear message to Tory backbenchers, increasingly uneasy with Boris Johnson's leadership. Up the mountain one day, down the next, you turning left, right and centre, scandal after scandal. And these people, especially in the Red Wall, will start to think to themselves, if there's a 10% swing away from the Tories in Bexley, what does that mean for me? I'd put money on Richard Tice getting between 5 and 10% uh, of, the, of the vote. I don't know what the odds are on that. Um, they need a result, don't they? Uh, they've been polling risibly badly in, uh, in the, the elections that they have stood in, despite huge amounts of money being spent, much of it, I think, Richard Tice's own money. Uh, people like him and Lawrence Fox, what's the difference between them? Why don't they merge? Why don't they merge their finances and their electoral appeal? They are basically the same political animal. Well, they are, and it's odd that those two entities haven't come together. They almost did in London back in May. You had Lawrence Fox standing for mayor, and in turn, Lawrence backed the Reform London Assembly candidates, and they had a pact going on there. But really, this is a, a last-chance saloon for Reform UK. They finished behind the Heritage Party in the Hartlepool by-election, and that's a party launched by former UKIP Assembly member David Curtin, very anti-lockdown, again, very similar to the political territory that Reform and Reclaim occupy. But the Heritage Party, on no money at all, beat Reform in Hartlepool. And so if Reform have another disastrous showing in Old Bexley and Sidcup, we could find a similar situation to the SDP. If you go back to Bootle, where they were defeated by the monster-raving loonies of all people. I, I, I remember and, uh, it vividly. And subsequently disbanded. And so if they don't pull something off here, people will begin to think that without Nigel Farage, they really are a uh, sinking ship. Let's take uh, a call, James. Uh, it's from Steve in Vermont. Steve, welcome. Hi, how, 
How are you doing? All good, by the grace of God. Thanks for ringing. What would you like to say? Well, I I was uh, going to say I have a solution for the pandemic. I, I don't know if anybody else does, but I thought about it and I did some research. And I, you know, I know uh, there are plenty of solutions out there that deal with the cold, the common cold, which is the coronavirus in many cases. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, but I called in to give you my solution to global warming, which is a big solution. My goodness, you're, you're, you are the oracle. You can cure the pandemic and the climate change. We're all here, Steve. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes. Yes. I, I actually that's funny. You mentioned the, the oracle because I used to work for a company in Boston called Delphi and they had a service called the Oracle. And uh, what it was was you send your question into a certain email box, and then you'd get an answer from the Oracle. Uh-huh. And I was actually the Oracle. I was the guy doing the work. You see, I've got, answer, I've got so. a sixth sense. I just kind of knew that, Steve. Now, look, it's late in the evening, so quickly if you can, how do we solve the climate change which, which problem? Which solution do you want? Climate change. Do you want uh, the climate change? Yeah. Okay, here it is. We need to build. We need to develop an infrastructure between the Earth and the Moon so that we can move lunar material to near-Earth orbit. And then when it gets hot somewhere, you just inject some lunar dust into the atmosphere strategically, and you cool it down. We shouldn't try and solve the problem all at once. Do it a little bit at a time. Well, you've sold it to me, Steve. I don't know how all these top leaders didn't think of that. Thanks for the call. Here's another Steve in Surrey in the United Kingdom. Let's hear from him. Steve, welcome. Hi, George. Hi. Hi. Hi there, mate. I, mean, I, I, I used to disagree with you. Um, I used to think you were sort of 30, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. We're about the same age. And I used to think you were, you know, a real communist socialist person. But guess what? Um, 95% of the stuff you say, um, I now agree with. It's unbelievable. I can, I can honestly say that I'm born again regarding... What I've heard, no, it's, not, it's not just you, by the way. It's not just you. Um, but, and um, you know, but I think what we're, what we're what we're really avoiding, what we're really avoiding from the whole of this concept of all this stuff, COVID nineteen, you know, nine uh, eleven, all these so-called conspiracy theories, especially you know, COP twenty six, global warming, etc. I don't deny, by the way. Um, that, you, that, that human beings aren't polluting the world. I mean, I just in my own life, I, as a hobby, I pick, it, yeah. Yeah. I, I pick up litter. That's my hobby. I, I, I walk around lakes and reservoirs. I have done for you know virtually all my life taking litter. I know, I know it's not the same as taking no, spirit it, out of it's, ribbon, it's living clean it, and trying to no, I don't like force it, other George. people I'm, to live yeah. clean. I'm all in favour of that. Yes. And so, but I don't see those people picking up litter being the same people that protest on the M25. And all I'm saying is, this whole thing we talk about, we avoid the issue of the world being run by secret societies and what, and what people um, could call the Illuminati, the occult, etc., etc., etc. And I think we, we have to grow... The, the balls to say to Ofcom, to say to the, you know, all the structures of society, the police forces, 
and everything, the courts and everything. We, we, we know what's going on. You might not know that your contribution is, 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 is what's making this thing happen. But, it, you know, I mean, you haven't got to be a bricklayer to know that, you know, two, two jets flying into the Twin Towers with four foot RSJs to know that that's not going to happen the way that came down. Well, uh, look, uh, Steve, we now have the complete cornucopia uh, from the Illuminati to uh, 9-11. I don't know if it's a full moon out there. We had uh, lunar dust as a solution to uh, climb. I don't know if there's a full moon out there tonight or you've waited uh, for the last few minutes of the show to inject a bit of humour, but thank you uh, for that uh, call. Let's talk, James, about uh, COP26. How is that impact? I mean, Sky News admitted today that they had been on a deliberate mission to nudge people, they said, down a certain political direction on this climate change uh, issue. In fact, they were boasting about their success in doing so. Notwithstanding the virtual greenwashing of the entire British media. Is the man and woman in the street convinced by COP26? I don't think so, and that's because there's very little uh, impact that COP26 will have on ordinary people. I said to you the other week that COP26, one of my fears, was it would be something that would happen to Glasgow rather than for Glasgow and to the country rather than for the country. And I think that we're actually seeing that play out. If you look at what COP26 has achieved thus far, virtually nothing. If you look at what COP26 is set to achieve, pretty much nothing other than an agreement that the Paris Accord should be followed and governments will work towards it. So why leaders are, you know, plunging millions of uh, carbon particles into the atmosphere, motorcades, private jets, to actually get this far is frankly beyond me. And as for Sky News, which you're quite right, did say that they were nudging people towards the green agenda. Let us not forget that the chief executive of Sky, uh, Sky has regularly been flying from America to Britain in a private jet to go to work. So it's hypocrisy of the highest order. Couldn't make it up. Let's uh, hear from Kenny in Acton. Kenny, welcome. Hi, George. I felt very enthused when you declared at the beginning of the show that you were going to do a documentary about uh, Donald Trump and how the British media and state played a part in his, you know, the Russia hoax, the Russia collision hoax. Mm-hmm. And it's not only the the media, it's also the bookshops that are part of blame for this, because every time I go into Waterstones and look for Donald Trump books, they're all books criticising him and trying to you know, putting down on somewhere, but they're full of praise books at Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and even Joe Biden, you know? I don't know how you get a book out of Joe Biden, really. How you get a positive book out of Joe Biden. I can see how you can can package uh, Michelle Obama, uh, even Barack Obama, but how you get a positive book uh, on uh, Joe Biden, I, I really don't know. You haven't read it, have you, Ken? No, but it's like uh, the same people who are funding Waterstones or donors to the Democratic Party or something. Well, I don't you know. know. Uh, like there's obviously... The, 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 who buys books? 
largely, sadly, it's middle-class people with uh, mainly liberal uh, political leanings, small-l liberal political leanings. There's, well, not, really, that, there's not really much of a market for the, the somewhat uh, bull in a china shop that uh, Donald Trump is. There's obviously a bit of a market for Hillary Clinton and the Obamas. Well, I don't know about that, George. I'm working class, only on 24 grand a year, and I buy my fair share of books. I love reading. Yeah, of course, so do and, I. Uh, uh, so do yeah. I, and always uh, have. But sadly, uh, I think I you'll find... I don't like to ask you a question. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, which cartoon series featured this song? You better look all your dose today, because Abu Hassan is on his way. I'm out gunning, so start a running from me and my 40 thieves. Was it A? <laughs> of course. Was it A? The Flintstones, B, Popeye, or C, The Simpsons? Well, the only person in here that can answer that is James Giles. James, do you know? I'm afraid I don't, George, actually. I, I'm, Kenny will have to enlighten I'm leaning us. to the Simpsons. Go ahead. No, it was actually Popeye, Abu Hassan and the 40 Thieves. I've when never heard of it. Quiet, uh, what, I remember. Popeye the sailor guy. man, he lives in a caravan. And something yeah. about eat your spinach. Because oh, no, no, he eats no, his no. spinach. He's Popeye the sailor man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah go ahead. You said you would follow me back on Twitter if I posted that photograph of I you and I. I never saw it. I never saw it. Did oh, you post on, it? Did you post it? Yes, on Twitter. Look, oh, many times. My my account, my Twitter account name is Kenny Given, and I'll post it right now. Okay. All right, I'll deal with it on the okay. way home. Thank you, Kenny. I keep getting fooled by the geographical location. Kenny is sometimes of Acton, sometimes of London, sometimes of West London. And it turns out it's Elvis every time. Uh, James, uh, as this is the penultimate uh, appearance for you, we'll, we'll uh, make sure that next, uh, next week is uh, uh, a special occasion for you. I uh, hope that we've got a, a cake to thank you for oh. your, uh, your wisdom. You've done absolutely uh, brilliantly. It's been a pleasure. Um, I hope it's not the end of your broadcast career because you're a natural... No, for it, I know you're going to be on the other side of the camera uh, most of the time uh, from now on, uh, at least for a period. You're very young. Uh, I'm sure that we'll be hearing a lot more uh, about you. Let me finish, if I may, uh, with a couple of uh, social media things that I didn't get to but wanted to. C. Lou says, lighten up, George. You're sounding like a grumpy old man. Now, I wanted to get to that question because I want to denounce it in the angriest possible terms. I am the most fun of anybody you have ever met in British politics and British broadcasting. Just because I sometimes have to get angry in the course of dealing with some of the biggest issues on the planet, some of the gravest crimes on the planet, does not mean that I'm a grumpy old man. And it certainly does not mean that I'm an 
old man. Because as my good wife will tell you, I am 45 years old. I may look sometimes wizened, sometimes grizzled, but that's all an act because it gives me a certain gravitas as a political commentator. In truth, I am as a spring lamb. If you saw me walking, running, lifting weights, and all the things I do, you would never have said that. See you next week. The podcast had another incredible week with a rise of 14% in total downloads. That's on top of last week's 10% increase, making us not only one of the fastest growing political programs on screens and on radio, but now in podcasts too. We're now one of the top political podcasts, not just in the UK, but also in Switzerland, Japan, Germany, Thailand, Taiwan, and believe it or not, the UAE. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? If you're a Spotify user, please follow us and share with your friends so more people can enjoy most. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.